going to be studying again in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, which is a chapter about an offering that Paul was organizing for the relief of the poor saints in Judea. And in the course of talking about this particular offering, he gives us the most concentrated teaching on money and giving that we find anywhere in the entire New Testament. So it's a good place to study to understand the biblical idea of money and giving. But before we dive into that, let's begin with prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for another Sunday to gather together in your name with people who love you. And as we discuss our mutual salvation, we want to give you all the glory because it was your great work of grace that made it possible for us to participate in the family of God. And we're so glad we're a part of it. We pray for those brothers and sisters around the world that many are lacking fellowship. I spoke to some yesterday that came in for the conference who are in the same condition. They have no fellowship other than just maybe two or three people. And Lord, help the remnant find one another and gather and be taught and meet their needs, we pray. And we ask you to bless this Sunday as we um, continue on in our worship service and with the sermon. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, 2 Corinthians 8. And we, were, we actually discussed verse 5, but we had not gotten to the cross-references. The passage says, but they, now still talking about the Macedonians, and Paul is using the Macedonians as sort of a role model or a good example of people who gave in a way that was pleasing to the Lord. And so, learning from them, it said they first gave themselves to the Lord. And as I said last week, that is emphatic yeah, so the, there's a priority of importance there. So nothing is more important than that they first, as a priority, gave themselves to the Lord. And then to us, there being Paul as an authoritative apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God. Probably meaning that they acknowledged Paul's apostolic authority and the impetus for their Giving was the fact that they had given themselves to the Lord and God was at work graciously in their lives and that work of grace caused them to be generous and even willing to give out of their own poverty, according to verse 2. Okay, Robert uh, has got the mic. Let's... Well, by the way, welcome, uh, Karen and Leif. They're here from Boston, right? Nice to have you. We miss you. Uh, Keith, 1 Samuel, wait a second, Isaiah, excuse me. 1 Samuel and Isaiah kind of look the same. If you take the I to be a Roman numeral. one. <laughs> Isaiah 44, 3 through 5. Isaiah 44, 3 through 5. Five. And Karen, Jeremiah 31.33, and Leif, Romans 6.13, uh, Joanne, Romans 14.7-9, and Dick, 
2 Corinthians 5, 14, and 15. 2 Corinthians 5, 14, and 15. Isaiah 44, 3 through 5. For I will pour out water on a thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I will pour out my spirit on your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. And they will spring up among the grass like poplars by streams of water. This one will say, I am the Lord's. And that one will call on the name of Jacob. And another will write on his hand, belonging to the Lord, and will name Israel's name with honor. Okay, so the priority was that God pours out his spirit. And, and this, this is a, really an ordo salutis issue here, order of salvation. So in Isaiah, God pours out his spirit. And when he does so, the result is this one says, I am the Lord's. All right. So it says first they gave themselves to the Lord, but people don't give themselves to the Lord until the Holy Spirit works uh, to convict them and to show them the reality of who God is. And then they give themselves to the Lord. And that, so that was the priority in Isaiah there. Okay, and the next passage? Jeremiah 31, verse 33. But this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and on their heart I will write it. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Yeah, and you see the same priority there in that passage, that God puts his spirit within the persons, and then the result is, I will be their God, and they'll be my people. They know the Lord, and they are the Lord's. Okay? Romans 6.13 and do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead, and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. Okay, so now Christians are being instructed to present themselves to God. Now, Romans 6 begins with the truth that Christians are dead and buried in baptism and raised in the likeness of Christ's resurrection. And so Paul makes some applications and implications from that truth. And one of them is the one that Leif read, that because you are new, because you have been raised from the dead spiritually, therefore do not present your, the members of your body as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourself to the Lord to serve him. And that's what the passage said. First, they gave themselves to the Lord. Okay. Romans 14:7 through 9. For not one of us lives for himself, and not one dies for himself. For if we live, we live for the Lord, or if we die, we die for the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or die, we are the Lord's. For to this end Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord both of the dead and of the living. Yep, the same idea. We live for the Lord, and the reason we do is because Christ died and lived again. And the same line of reasoning that we saw in Romans chapter 6. And then uh, 2 Corinthians 5, 14 and 15. For the love of Christ controls us, having concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died. And he died for all, so that they who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. Same idea. <laughs> Those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their, on their behalf. So, again, Paul discusses the death, burial, re, death and resurrection of Christ and 
the implication for Christians is that we should live for the Lord, not for ourselves. Okay? Um, Let's go to the next verse. It says here, so we urge, verse 6, we urge Titus that as he had previously made a beginning, so he would also complete in you this gracious work as well. Here we are again back to this term, charis, grace. And we've heard that term in verse 4, verse 6, verse it will be again here in verse 7, the next one, 19, 16. There's all kinds of verses where it talks about grace. If you look down in your Bible, you'll see gracious work and grace. And according to the passage we saw a few weeks ago, Romans 8 and verse 3, they are free to give or they're free not to give. They're not under constraint to give to this project that, that Paul was working on, that is a matter of free will. It says the, the word own accord in 2 Corinthians 8.3 could be legitimately translated free will or to choose for oneself. So one of the things we know about giving, according to the New Testament, is that it's prompted by God's prior work of grace and that giving itself is called a gracious work. And we know from verse 3 here, it's a matter of one's free will. And therefore, it's not under constraint. And as we've been talking about over the last few weeks, therefore, church leaders who would like to raise money should really follow Paul's pattern here and not try to create some sort of a guilt situation in order to get people to give money. In other words, you're guilty because you have your money, but if you gave it to me, you could feel a lot better about yourself. (laughs) Okay? They don't say it quite in such a crass way, but if you listen to the whole spiel, that's what the bottom line really is. Okay? That's totally inappropriate, and that shows uh, that whoever does that doesn't understand the concept of grace, nor do they understand this idea of free of your own accord, giving of your own accord, giving graciously, giving because God did gracious work in you. Then last week we talked about faith pledges. Somebody asked about the faith pledge, and we found several reasons, if you weren't here, several reasons why those are inappropriate. And not the least of which is presumptuous. Okay? You don't know. In fact, we're going to study about worrying today in Luke. We don't know tomorrow. (laughs) We don't know what tomorrow is going to bring. And to suggest that I'm going to give money that I don't have because God's going to give it to me at some future date is really putting people in a place of presumption. And it's really inappropriate. Not to mention you're putting guilt. As I said last week, if you weren't here, These faith pledges create guilt and they create shame because what happens is you make a faith pledge and what what happens if all this extra money doesn't come in to complete your pledge? You're going to go tell the pastor, I don't have faith? Well, you don't don't want to say that. You want to say, well, gee, I'm lacking faith, so now I can't make my pledge. So it's really a bad situation. Isn't uh, that the same that fall into the vow category as well? Making a vow? Because if I'm I'm doing a pledge, 
I'm saying this is what I will do, and it falls into don't make any any vows. Yeah, you, you know, Keith, you, you weren't here last week, but you know the application I made? The businessmen in James, the ones who said we're going to go here, there, and make a big profit. And you ought to say, if the Lord wills, because you don't know the future. It's yeah. the same, but the same thing. So all these things that we are doing on making, taking an oath, yeah, would be uh, would it be apply? Okay. Yeah, you're you're vowing to do what you can't may not be able to do. One of the reasons for not taking vows, and in fact, the not taking vows shows up in James in the same context as the not saying you're going to make a profit next year when you don't know whether you will or you won't. <laughs> now. Um, all that the Lord is asking us is that we admit we don't know the future and that we admit we're dependent on him for that unknown future. And this applies to our sermon, which is going to be about not worrying in Luke 12. It goes from the rich fool who, where the disciples are warned against greed. The next pericope is don't worry. So I don't want to hit on myself. That's the sermon. But, but part of it is admitting that we are utterly dependent on God and that the future is unknown and that the only reasonable course of action is to put yourself into God's hand and trust him. You don't know if you're going to be alive tomorrow. That's what the rich fool forgot. Today, your soul is required of you. And so he should have been putting himself in God's hands and saying, all this money isn't going to do me any good in eternity. Right? So when it comes to giving... We, we don't give what we don't have, presuming that we're going to have it in the future. We give what we do have, and we don't give what we do have in order to lessen the amount of guilt we have in our lives. You cannot get rid of guilt with money. And by the way, isn't that what provoked the Reformation? You know, Luther didn't start out just dealing with all of the things about the gospel and justification and everything else, he started out his protest by protesting indulgences. He saw that as an abuse of the people, and so the 95 Theses were all about indulgences. And then all these other issues eventually came to the fore in the Reformation. But there was an abuse where you're trying to get people to give money in order to lessen their guilt or buy off God, so to speak, with money. We don't do that. So why would we give at all? If it's not required, if we don't have a load of guilt hanging over us that we're buying off, if, if, uh, why would anybody give? Why? Because people who receive grace from God, they, they, they love to give <laughs> because they want to support the gospel. That's what it said here in 2 Corinthians 8, um, verse 2, in a great ordeal of the affliction of, of their abundance of joy and in their deep poverty overflowed to the wealth of their liber, liberality. And um, uh, verse 4, begging us with much urging for the grace of fellowship. I mean, I'm, I'm translating it from the Greek here. Begging us with much exhortation, paraklesis, for the uh, grace, charis, of koinonia, fellowship, in the support of the saints. So that's just what happens. That's, that's all there is to it. It's really quite simple. Now, uh, so again we have gracious work in verse 6. God's grace toward believers, all right, God's grace toward believers prompts them 
to participate in a gracious work. There are certain things that are just true because of the nature of what, of what a work of grace is and what it does. Okay, there are things that are true because of the nature of the new birth and the nature of being a child of God. And they're just true. And, they're, and you can count on them to be universally true. Now, one of them is, for example, the passage that says, As newborn babes in Christ desire the sincere milk of the word that you may grow thereby. So that's something that's universally true. And, and here's what I'm saying. If God has done a work of grace, one of the things that will be true of those who have been the beneficiaries of God's work of grace is that they will grow if they're taught the Bible. They will grow as certainly as a baby will grow who's given milk. And this analogy isn't just about new Christians. It's about all Christians. In other words, it's a simile. It's a simile that applies what a baby is like with milk to what a Christian's like with the Word. Okay? So God did a work of grace. Those persons who are recipients of it will grow if they're taught the pure Word of God. It absolutely is guaranteed because of the nature of what God's done. Now, if you teach the pure Word of God to a church and the people do not like it, then you have evidence that you have a lot of unconverted persons in the pew. Okay? If the church is filled with unconverted persons, they will not like it if they're taught the pure word of God. Why not? Because there's a, there's a chasm between being redeemed and unredeemed. When you have a new nature, then that makes certain things true about you that wouldn't be. Before I was redeemed... There's no way I would want to sit in a church hearing uh, the preaching of the Word in a very convicting way because I don't want to hear that. But once I was saved, you couldn't keep me away from it. Is that true? Absolutely true. So that's why you can tell what's going on. See, you can't actually see the Holy Spirit. You can't really see grace. It's an intangible thing, but you can see the effect. And it's like um, John said in John chapter 3 about the Holy Spirit. He says, the wind blows where it does, so the Holy Spirit's like that. Okay? You can't see the wind, but you can see the leaves. <laughs> so you can't see the Holy Spirit, but you can see redeemed people growing. And another thing is saying here is that the redeemed who have received grace are generous. That's just the way they are. And it, you don't have to do anything more. You just give the grace, and the generosity comes out of that. Yes. Yeah, well, the concept of the means of grace and the word is where you see in the parable where they're sowing the seed. Uh-huh. And the one thing about the enemy, the enemy comes in and snatches the seed, which is the word in that parable, and takes it away from them so they don't grow, so nothing does grow. Yeah. So it's the inverse of that same concept where the enemy takes the word away and without the word, there's no life. Right. So then you can expect that what spiritual warfare is about is Satan opposing the preaching of the gospel and the teaching of the truth of the word in a church. And so 
some people may be well-meaning when they think, well, we've got a better plan because we've consulted all the marketing surveys and we've done our focus groups and we've done uh, demographic studies and we've got all of this stuff figured out and we know this is what these people are looking for. Well, those surveys will never, ever once come back with the result they're looking for the pure teaching of the gospel unless you're only surveying born-again Christians. No lost person says, I want to hear the gospel, unless God has been really convicting them by the Holy Spirit, like the Ethiopian eunuch. You know, if the Holy Spirit's already been working on somebody and they're convicted, then they want to hear it. Please tell us, how do we get right with God? But that's already a sign of God's Spirit at work. So, as that passage said in John 3, uh, somebody, could you look that up? Gretchen, could you look up John 3? And somewhere about verse... Where's that? Where does it talk about the wind? Well, you'll find it. Uh, Dick and I are going to do some ra- do radio shows on the church growth theory soon, and that's I'm very energized about that one right now because I I think we can prove that church growth thinking has destroyed the entire evangelical movement of any effectiveness because it it takes it takes means of grace away from the church is what it does. And that's why Keith, you brought up means of grace. That's a very important thing. That, that concept is just revolutionary. And, and it took me years to figure out why Luther and the uh, and Reformed and Lutheran doctrine always taught means of grace. I could never understand that because it seemed to me like just sort of some sort of sacramentalism or something. And so I resisted it. But when, I, when, when the scales came off my eyes and I could see what they were talking about, I could see why they had the definition that they did. The Reformed definition of the church is this. Wherever the Word is purely taught in the sacraments, we don't use that terminology. We had a Sunday school where we talked about it. I would say ordinances, but they said sacraments. are practiced according to the Lord's institution, then it should not be doubted that there a true church exists. So the, the Reformation doctrine of a church was a church where the means of grace, the Word, the Lord's Supper, and baptism are practiced according to the Lord's institution. Now, I agree with that. Now, why do they say that? Because it takes it away from the subjective realm. If the means of grace are present, then the recipients of grace will be present. Okay? And if the word is purely taught, you can count on the fact that a church actually exists because the church, the true church is actually invisible. We talk about the invisible church and the visible church. You have a group of people. The invisible church are all those who actually have their names in the book of life. And we don't have a copy of that. (laughs) It hasn't been published. And so you can't say, oh, okay, these ones we know for sure. But you do know that true Christians will, when they hear, when the gospel is preached, God will convert people and the word's taught, God will feed them and they will grow. So that's what you look for objectively. The objective thing you look for is the pure word of God taught and the means of other means of grace, and we would go further than the Reformed definition because we include prayer, which they wouldn't. Some do, anyhow. But things that God's ordained are, are to be done in the church. When those things are done in the church, it's, it's certain that God's grace is being brought to the people and that many of them are recipients of it because they have truly believed the gospel and they've grown and God is changing their lives, and that's how you know a church is there. 
And it, it has nothing to do with how many people are there or how much excitement there, are, there is or how many signs and wonders are happening. None of that is how you know that there's a true church. Okay? There was a true church in Macedonia because the sign of God's grace was there. All right, now, what was the passage about the wind? Okay, um, I, I recommend everyone reads uh, uh, from, chapter, uh, from uh, chapter 3, verses 1 through 21, because it gives you the whole narrative. Nicodemus asked Jesus, how can a man be born when he is old? Surely he cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb to be born. Jesus answered, tell, I tell you the truth. No one can enter the kingdom of God unless he is born of water and the spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the spirit gives birth to spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying, you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with, every, so it is with everyone born of the spirit. Okay. So the, the wind blows wherever it is. Uh, the Holy Spirit moves however he decides to move. And so it is with those who are born of the Spirit. This isn't something we control. God is sovereign. God, the Holy Spirit, is sovereign. But what we do have is God's ordained means. And, and the Great Commission says, go into the nations, teaching them or making disciples, baptizing them, teaching them to observe whatsoever I commanded you. It says in Luke that repentance for forgiveness of sins should be preached to all the nations beginning in Jerusalem. And therefore, what I know is this. God is going to use the gospel to save the lost. I can't see what the Spirit's going to do, but I can preach the gospel. He's like the wind. But when you preach the gospel, the Holy Spirit blows into people's lives, and they're born again. All right? Okay. So that's, that's what we do. Yes? Well, there's a passage in Galatians that ties the same, the same concept together with the money. And it says, Galatians 2, 9, it's when Paul came and presented his gospel before the leaders. It says, and, recognizes, and recognizing the grace that had been given to me, so the leaders recognized the grace that had been given to Paul, uh, James and Cephas and John, who were reputed to be pillars, gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship so that we might go to the Gentiles and they do to the circumcised. They only asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. So you have grace in remembering the poor, which is what the offering is doing at the oh, same wow. time. Yeah. So where grace happens in people's lives by God's ordained means, the gospel goes forth, people are received into fellowship, and people become generous and they will support gospel preaching. And I think, as a matter of fact, we ought not to support anything that isn't rather directly. It can be a little bit indirect, but if the gospel preaching isn't, at the, isn't on radar, it's not a very worthy project, in my opinion. Or it's got to be tied to the gospel. Okay? Because that's the means of grace. Yes, Rich, over here. There's, I've seen there's so many people that call the gospel the gospel, but it's not the gospel. It's, it's, it's close, but it's so far off. I mean, it's just so subtly off. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. In fact, that's why I, I like when Paul, he, he uses synonyms for, for the gospel. In other words, 
He says the preaching of the cross. That's another synonym for the gospel. But he says it that way because if you don't have the cross, you don't really have the gospel. Because it's the gospel of crucified Jewish Messiah. Paul also uses another synonym. He says the preaching of Christ. Preaching Christ in Philippians. That's a synonym for the gospel. Preaching Christ crucified. Synonym for the gospel. (laughs) Okay? Preaching the gospel. That's the same idea. And all of those are tied to the person and work of Christ and what are the terms by which a person can come to him. And if the the person and work of Christ and the cross and, and, and the basic terms of the gospel are missing, then it's not going to become a means of people's salvation because the light is coming through the window like a translucent one, like the kind of window you'd buy for a bathroom, so, so light can sort of get through, but you can't really see through it. That's how the gospel is presented so often, and people don't even know what the issues are. Okay, so back to our grace here. So I, I want us to be thinking that way. God does his work of grace through his ordained means. One of the results is that Christians become generous toward the poor, toward one another, and toward anything that is furthering the gospel. And it's just a work of grace. And Paul can say, this is of your free will. He doesn't, he's not afraid if he says, this is a free will, you can choose not to give. There's no guilt for not giving. He's not afraid that if he does that, there won't be any money. Why is he not afraid there won't be any money if he says free will? Because grace is going through, I mean, grace is in this, these believers, and because they've received grace, they beg Paul to be participants in a generous way for his offering. All right. Now, Titus is mentioned here, and he's going to complete that evidently before they had begun to take a collection in Achaia, where Corinth is, but they had this problem, this dispute, the false super apostles, the, the ones who were Paul's enemy there. And Paul had gone and writ, written his severe letter. He was afraid that he may have permanently alien, alienated the, the Corinthians, but he felt like this is what he needed to do. Titus had just come back with a report that his severe letter was received and that God was healing the relationship between Paul and the church at Corinth. And so now, with this healed relationship, Paul feels uh, free to send Titus to complete the, the, the collection that was begun previously. So, that's the background. I have just a couple of verses here. Uh, Robin, if you could uh, read, is that okay? You don't mind? Uh, Philippians 4, uh, 18 and Philippians 4, 18 and Mike 1 Peter 4 10. Philippians 4 18. I have received full payment and even more. I am amply supplied now that I have received from. What does it say? Well, I have received everything in full and have abundance and amply supplied, having received from Epaphroditus what you have sent, a fragrant aroma, acceptable sacrifice, well pleasing to God. Oh, well, I asked you to do it, and then I read it. I just couldn't hear the mic. Okay. Now, notice that uh, well-pleasing and uh, the fragrant aroma. This, the, gift, the gift of the church 
in Philippi to Paul, who was imprisoned, he called a well-pleasing aroma. And using terminology from the Old Testament sacrifices, when someone, like, remember when, yeah, the, the, remember when Noah first made a sacrifice after he got off? And it was well-pleasing to God? And so this gift of the Philippians to Paul was a sign in his, it was really exciting to Paul because, for one thing, this guy risked his life to bring the, the gift to Paul. And another, it showed their love for the gospel. Because Paul is so linked to the gospel that when they're supporting Paul, they're, they're, they're putting their endorsement on the gospel that he preaches. And so this was an offering that was well-pleasing to God. That's what that, that means. And then the next passage was 1 Peter 4, verse 10. As each one has received a gift, minister it to one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. Interesting, interesting terminology. Ministering to one another using the gifts that the Lord has given us makes us stewards of the manifold grace of God. So God is working graciously in the lives of Christians. And what they have is because of God's grace. And when they care for one another and serve one another, they're being stewards of the grace that they got from God. Isn't that an interesting idea? Stewardship of grace. So God gives grace and makes us a steward of somebody who's responsible for something that belongs to another. Right? So the, the grace is God's. We're stewards of it. And one of the ways we can be that is by giving graciously and freely. Now we go to verse 7, and there's, there's a, a kind of a, a list of gifts. And then Paul wants to add one thing to it. Now, let me read it and then comment on why Paul's saying this. But just as you abound in everything, in faith and utterance and knowledge and in all earnestness and in the love we inspired in you, see that you abound in this gracious work also. Now, a couple of things have been said about this. Uh, one is that the first three things, faith, utterance, and knowledge, would be things that the Corinthians were uh, emphasizing and proud of. Because in 1 Corinthians, Paul mentions those things, and he mentions that they, that that they have knowledge. And, and, they're, and they're proud about how much knowledge they have, but Paul's trying to correct them, you know. And where is that passage where he corrects them about that? It says, anybody says he knows something but doesn't know this. All right. First one that finds it. Yeah, I always say that. You get a free cup of coffee during fellowship time. <laughs> We're really generous with the prizes around here. It's at the beginning. It could be First Corinthians 8 at the beginning. Or is it 9 or 10? Anyhow. Yes, Patrick. Eight, one through three. Patrick, you win. Oh, no. All right, you get hot water. <laughs> you, get, you have to turn in your Minnesota credentials, too. <laughs> okay, where's the mic? Do you want to look up 1 Corinthians 8, one through three? 
1 Corinthians 8, 1 through 3. Now concerning things offered idols, we know that we all have knowledge. Knowledge puffs up, but love edifies. And if anyone thinks that he knows anything, he knows nothing, yet as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, this one is known by him. Okay. There is a certain type of knowledge that the Corinthians were claiming that really wasn't adequate in and of itself. And it was a sort of knowledge that was puffing up, a gnosis. So that's something they're proud of. We got gnosis. But Paul says if you don't really know the Lord, then you don't really know anything. Okay. So they so one of the theories about this verse is that Paul is is saying, well, you have all these things that you relish, faith, utterance, and knowledge, you know, the stuff about speaking in tongues in 1 Corinthians and so on, the things that they claimed that was their claim to fame. But another way of looking at it is that he's listing these all as legitimate gifts, some of which they do have, and another that needs to be added to it. So faith and utterance and knowledge, if they're done correctly, are good things and evidences of grace, earnestness, and then because it says, in the love we inspired in you. Um, there's, a, there's a translation issue with that, but I think the meaning is as it is here in the New American Standard. So being how that would be, uh, see the question is, is that their love for Paul or what? But probably it says it's translated here, See to it that you abound in this gracious work also. So you have all these things that would be evidence of grace, if that's how Paul means it. That if that's the truth, this being able to give to help the poor would be a nice addition within that church of, of the things that are going on there. Let me look at some of my cross-references on this. Um, Garland, 48 and 49. This is from uh, Dr. Garland commentary on 2 Corinthians from the New American Commentary series. Because there's an issue about the reading, about the love. Some argue for the reading, our love for you, because Paul previously reproached them for having squeezed him out of their hearts, 6.12, and implored them to make room in their hearts for him, 7.2. This internal evidence suggests that he could hardly presume that they overflowed in love for him. On the other hand, Paul does proclaim his deep love for them, 6, 11, 7, 3. But Paul is speaking about the graces of the Corinthians, and to mention his own love for them as something they excel in would disturb the sense. According to Paul's explanation in 7, 12, Paul wrote the severe letter so that they might make their zeal for him known. This statement assumes that this zeal was momentarily obscured, but not completely lost. Their positive reaction to Paul's letter and to Titus's visit permits him now to say that they love him. In 8.8, Paul says that he is testing the genuineness of their love, so he must be speaking here about the love they possess for him rather than the love he has for them. Now, the, the reason for the issue is the Greek, the Greek is ambiguous. It could mean either. But it probably means this. Um, but here it says the love we inspired in you. It kind of says both things. They have love, and it was inspired by something that God did through Paul and his apostolic ministry. Uh, I have some cross-references. 
Uh, Jim, do you want to do uh, Romans 15:14 and Kathy 1 Corinthians 14:12 and Roger Ephesians 4:29. And then I have another citation. Let me see what that is. This is from Barnett. He says the verb is written to encourage and admonish the Corinthians. They overflow in other graces. Let them overflow in this also. The various catalogs of the charismata in the first letter do not appear to follow any logical system. This is, this is not the case here. The first three, faith, uh, probably to work miracles of healing, if it's connected to 1 Corinthians 12, speech, teaching, glossolalia, and prophecy, and knowledge, and understanding of God's ways relate to activities that are prized within the Corinthian assembly. The Corinthians are strong in activities that are local to and centered upon them. Miracle working faith, charismatic speech, and theological understanding, but weak on those that are to benefit of those outside, in this case, the saints in Jerusalem. Significantly, says Barnett, the grace of God is both given, that is, by God, and at the same time actively overflowing from believers. This can only mean that believers are not passive in the experience in the ministry gifts of God. Clearly, the grace of giving is among these, and in this case, the climatic point to which the previous six verses have been leading. So, God gives grace, but believers participate in a gracious work. This is something that overflows in them and through them because of grace that came from God. All right, cross-references. Romans 15:14. I myself am satisfied about you, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and able to instruct one another. Okay, this talks about gifts that are overflowing and the ability to minister because of God's overflowing gifts. 1 Corinthians 14:12. So also you, since you are zealous of spiritual gifts, seek to abound for the edification of the church. Okay. There's that abounding again. So the gifts, one of the uh, one thing that would always be a misuse of a gift, always would be a bad thing, is when somebody's gift, valid, if it's a valid gift or whatever, but somebody says, I'm gifted, and that's supposed to be their calling card. Okay? And I've seen that on posters. Uh, advertising Christian meetings. Come here, the great gifted, anointed man of God. Now, this is per- particularly what Paul was rebuking the Corinthians for. They're, they're, I can speak in tongues, says somebody. Okay, that makes me a better Christian. Paul rebukes that idea. I can do this. I have, wonder, I have miracle working faith, the Corinthians say. No, what you really need is love, or what you really need is to serve the body. Overflow in serving, not in promoting your own would-be spirituality. And the practice of putting out posters or billboards or websites touting the giftedness of some man is inappropriate. Other than to just say, here's what God wants us to do, and we're seeking to do it by His grace, and, and so on. Now, well, Roger. Ephesians 4.29, 
Let no corrupt word proceed out of your mouth, but what is good for necessary edification, that it may impart grace to the hearers. Okay, so the words coming out of the mouth of Christians that edifies others imparts grace. (laughs) That's an interesting idea, isn't it? But if our edification, exhortation, and comfort is legitimate prophecy, in which we define as bringing out valid implications and applications of Scripture, as we open the Bible together and as we admonish one another, that was the idea in the Romans 15 passage, uh, as we edify one another by making applications to things, there's grace in that because it's coming from the Word of God. Applications of the Word of God are binding and powerful. And we make applications. I thought... I want to do a little bit of a debriefing from the conference yesterday. I know you weren't all there, but Robert, you made a good point. Why don't you tell everybody what you told me that you thought was a great point you heard at the conference? Well, uh, we were talking a little bit afterwards. Uh, we were discussing how um, the, one of the strongest points that um, he made yesterday at the conference um, was that um, when you look at these teachers... And when they're talking about contemplative prayer and how it strengthens the faith and um, uh, encourages you in the faith, you'd think that over time they would be preaching the gospel. They'd be someone like you'd find in the scriptures. Um, bold bold, bold in, the gospel. in the gospel. And yet when you examine their lives of these teachers, it's actually the opposite. They're actually leading people away from the scriptures and they're teaching, in some cases, heresy. Yes, uh, yes. And, and uh, that is, a, I think, fit, fitting with what we're talking about here about God's grace. or that verse that Roger read about the words that come from our mouth impart grace because they're attached to the truths of the Scripture and of the Gospel. So Ray Youngman, who spoke here yesterday, made a very interesting point, and that is what Robert said. So they're saying that if you do this uh, practice of silencing the mind so that you, that you end up hearing from God, so then once you get your mind silenced, then God comes and talks to you. All right. So Ray said, if that is what was happening then the result would be these guys would come from that experience to go out and proclaim Christ in the gospel. Because that's what the Holy Spirit does when it works in a person's life. When he works in a person's life powerfully, he makes them a bold gospel preacher. Remember that message on evidences of how to discern the true work of the Spirit? And I went through verse after verse after verse after verse. I mean, just an overwhelming number of verses where it says the Holy Spirit came upon somebody and they preached Christ. The Holy Spirit, why does that happen? Why does it happen that when the Holy Spirit truly moves, the person who is the recipient of that move preaches Christ? Why? Because Jesus said, the Holy Spirit, when he comes, will testify of me. Okay, that's how you know it's the Holy Spirit. You don't know it's the Holy Spirit because somebody's falling on the ground. You don't know it's the Holy Spirit, even if there's healings. Okay, the way you know if there are healings... And Christ is being preached, and the healing is, a, is attesting to that Jesus is the Christ. That's the point of a sign. It signifies that Jesus is the Christ. That's how you know the healing is from God. Now, whether they're healed or not healed, because there are psychic healings. Right? And so there's counterfeit signs and wonders. But if they're preaching Christ and somebody's healed, 
The healing just brings glory to Christ and it points people to the gospel. That's how you discern it. So you always discern a work of the Spirit by the, preach, the resultant preaching of Christ. And you can see that throughout Acts. You can see it in 1 John 4 and verse 1, confessing Jesus come in the flesh. And you can see it in Luke. And you can see it in Paul's life. And you can see it in the epistles. That's how you know. So, therefore, I totally agree I believe that Ray Youngen taught a valid implication and application of Scripture when he said that. Because when somebody says, if you do that, God is going to talk to you by his Spirit, then the way you know that God talked to them is they'll come out of their contemplative prayer chamber preaching Christ. But none of them has. That's what Ray said. You read their material and they come up with perverted and gospel and... Uh, uh, things that are this keating that that some went and heard they don't come up with they ever they never come from their experience with the gospel so Ray judged it to be wrong I agree there's a lot of ways to judge it to be wrong but that's a very objective one are they confessing Christ come in the flesh no well so that's not God talking to them very good point anybody else have a a, uh, a point that they took from the conference yesterday you thought was important. Uh, well, Roger. Sometime back I'd gone to Thomas Keating's website on Centering Prayer, and he has a whole page or two on the theology supporting Centering Prayer. Yeah. In which there's not one reference to Scripture. Wow. So and Ray made the same point, that they don't have a scriptural right. foundation for it. Yeah, that's another point that Ray made. There is nothing in the Scripture that teaches this is how we're supposed to come to God. Nothing. And the only reference they have is a couple of little phrases wrenched out of context. Okay, be still and know that I am God. But Keating, <laughs> Keating says in part of his autobiographical, autobiographical comments that he learned about the spiritual or allegorical sense of Scripture. And, of course, if you take an allegorical view, then you can make it mean whatever you want it to mean. Yes. Um, the next CIC article that will be put in the mail on Wednesday is about another group that does that very thing. They use the allegorical method of biblical interpretation. So they're using the Bible and teaching from it, but they interpret it using allegory. And, and what that means is that the Bible is like a code, a code book, and it's actually saying something that the words aren't really saying, and the clever reader finds a meaning by allegorizing. In the case of this, the one coming out Wednesday, uh, this guy, Mike Bickle, is teaching on the parable of the virgins in Matthew 25. Okay. And he allegorizes every single point of this. The, uh, the, the lamps are, are ministries. The oil in the lamps are levels of intimacy with God. And so on and so forth. And the virgins uh, are, the, the, are different types of Christians, which the context makes clear is not the case. And so on. And so you take this allegorical approach to the Bible and the bottom line is, I hope you, if you haven't taken Ryan's hermeneutics class yet, I would urge you to do so online 
He's taught it about three times here, but the last time we recorded it and put it online, you really need to take that hermeneutics class because it's just it's really basic, but it's very important. It's very well done. Um, the basic thing you need to know about interpreting the Bible is that the author of the Bible determines the meaning. Okay? The Holy Spirit inspired prophets and apostles to write the Scripture, starting with Moses. And the meaning is determined by the Holy Spirit-inspired writer of the Scripture. And the meaning is one, and the meaning doesn't change. The meaning stays the same throughout the centuries. If you, take, if you want an analogous discussion about that, look at the debate over the Constitution here in the United States. Some people say the Constitution is a living document, seeming to give it more status. But it's really a subtle attack against the document because you're seeing the meaning is morphing and it cannot be determined by reading the intent of the original authors. Now, the same thing goes with the Bible. The people who are attacking the meaning of the Bible say the Bible is a living document, citing passages in the Bible. By living, they mean morphing, changing, and so therefore the reader determines the meaning. Now, and that's exactly the position of the emerging church that I've cited, and I, and I have a chapter about that in my book. The emerging church is saying we get together and the Spirit tells us what the Bible means. But we're not sure what that meaning is because it keeps changing. And it might be different for all the however many different readers there are. Now, the allegorical method, which was invented by uh, what I call a heretic, a guy by the name of Origen, who I believe was a heretic, not a church father as he's usually called, Origen invented the allegorical method. And it came into the Roman Catholic Church and, and it caused mischief for thousands of years. It caused mischief because now you can determine meanings that the Scripture doesn't actually have. And because the mischief was uh, totally out of control or could be totally out of control, the Catholic Church, in order to rein in all the possibilities, created a teaching magisterium. Okay? The teaching magisterium controls. They can allegorize the Bible, but you can't. So their allegory is the right one because God told them what it means. And yeah. bringing it all back together, we're reading right now the Word of God and what God is saying, what Paul intended, and God is saying to you, Paul, on giving. Yes. And this is what giving means because this is what we're trying to understand what Paul was meaning about his teaching on giving so that God's teaching in this is binding on us. Yes. And through the allegorical method, the Catholics came up with saying, you can buy your way into heaven with an indulgence. So the, the, the way that they got there was using an allegorical method yep. that Luther thumped down and came back and gives us what the Bible really says. The plain sense of Scripture, the doctrines of the Reformation on the Scripture, the Scripture alone, the authority of Scripture, the clarity of Scripture... Uh, the, the Reformation denied the idea that the Bible is so cryptic that the average person can't be expected to know what it means. So only these church prelates can tell you what it means. Well, no, the, the Bible is for the entire church, and its meaning can be determined 
by a reader, not, not by the reader, can be, can be understood by the reader as having been determined by the author. Yes. Back to your question about any points from the conference yesterday. Uh, what are the things that stuck with me? I don't know how well he made this point yesterday in the conference, but in reading his book, he talks about what a slippery slope all this contemplative prayer is. At, and I personally wasn't so concerned with contemplative prayer. What's the problem before I got, read his book and such? But he made a very good point in, in proving that. And uh, he made an application out of Second Corinthians from, in Second Corinthians 6. Uh, he, he applied the uh, verses 14 and, and following. He says, because this contemplative prayer so many times bring us, brings us to, you know, all religions are good. All, there are many paths to, to Jesus. Yeah. We don't have to worry about the blood of Christ. And, and that's where many times this centering contemplative prayer brings us to. And he applied uh, verse 2 Corinthians 6:14 and, and following, Do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. Uh-huh. For what fellowship has righteousness with lawlessness? And it goes all the way down through verse 16. Uh-huh. Um, and it was just a very good application of that. That, that is scripture. a good application, Mike. Uh, absolutely. When we studied that section in Sunday school, we were talking about what was Paul forbidding? He was forbidding fellowship between Christians and pagans in some sort of a religious sense. In other words, you can't go down to the pagan feast. You can't go to the pagan religious ceremonies. You can't do the pagan practices. This interspirituality that Ray Youngen was talking about yesterday is precisely what Paul forbade. It, it's uh, learning from the pagans. Christ, Christian yoga is is interspirituality, and it's a, and it's a transgression of Paul's teaching in Second Corinthians chapter six, and it's a participating together with the pagans. We have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness. We are to reprove them, not to fellowship with them. So if you weren't here, there'll eventually be CDs and DVDs of the seminar. But we were honored and blessed yesterday to have Ray Youngen speak three times and um, a lot of good information about what's happening, first of all, in the world with the New Age movement and then how it came into the church. That's, that's the issue. So I, I wanted to take a little bit of time at the end of Sunday school to have a little debriefing on uh, the Young Youngin Conference, but it, w- it was very good. So, uh, today we're going to study Luke 12 again upstairs and enjoy the time of fellowship. We'll see you in a half hour.